This is the Sex and Psychology Podcast, and it's the sex ed you never got in school and won't find anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lee Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. In the college human sexuality courses I've taught, my favorite assignment to give students by far prompted them to immerse themselves in a sexually diverse environment. They were encouraged to step just a little bit outside of their comfort zone and observe some kind of sexual diversity. Students had complete freedom to customize the assignment, but something I noticed year after year is that the most common environment students chose was visiting a sex shop. In their papers, students would talk about their preconceived ideas about what the experience would be like, and they contrasted that with their actual experiences. Almost universally, my students were pleasantly surprised. While they might have felt a little bit anxious or ashamed about opening up the door of the establishment, they quickly got very comfortable. And it was due in large part to the very welcoming and helpful sales associates inside who put them at ease by being non-judgmental. When you think about it, working in a sex shop isn't an easy job. A lot of people walking in might be embarrassed or they might have a complicated relationship with their own sexuality. So what's it actually like to work in a sex shop anyway? That's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to explore the good, bad, and ugly of working behind the counter in a sex store. We're going to talk about the kind of training that employees get, the most rewarding and most challenging aspects of the job, how the release of Fifty Shades of Grey forever changed what it's like to work in one of these stores, and why working in a sex shop is kind of like being an amateur sex and relationship therapist. I am joined once again by Fancy Feast, a Brooklyn-based burlesque performer, writer, and sex educator. Her burlesque work has been profiled on NPR, Refinery29, and the Huffington Post, and it was the focus of the previous episode of this show. Her debut book, Naked, on sex, work, and other burlesques, is set for release next month. This is going to be an amazing conversation. Stick around, and we're gonna jump in right after the break. Securing Sexuality is the first mental health conference dedicated exclusively to bringing together cross-disciplinary experts to explore emerging legal and ethical issues around sex and technology. This conference will cover a wide array of topics, including how to safeguard pleasure with internet-connected sex toys, the rise of digital sex work, the use of social media for organizing within the kink and polyamory communities, increasing safety in online dating, as well as the ethical considerations that are arising from the growing intersection between virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and sexuality. This conference will be held October 19th and 20th in Detroit, Michigan. Attendees will come away with a deeper understanding of and appreciation for the challenges and solutions to building healthy relationships in our increasingly digital world, while also cultivating a meaningful global community of colleagues. Continuing education credits are available for qualified professionals. Check the show notes for the link or purchase your pass to the Securing Sexuality conference today at securingsexuality.com. Okay, Fancy, let's talk about sex education. In your book, you talk about how you actually had quite a bit of sex ed prior to it being covered in high school. So as a starting point, tell us a little bit about what your own experience with sex education was like growing up. I was very fortunate to be raised by a child of the 60s. 
Um, my mother was a very forthright person when it came to sexuality. And so sex was, it wasn't a matter of like the talk. It was a more open topic in my house growing up. And when I asked questions, I was really treated as somebody who could handle the answers. And like they were developmentally appropriate, of course. But I had a lot of resources available to me as a very young person. And so I had natural curiosity about sexuality. And because that wasn't stigmatized or criticized in me at all, I was able to just sort of do a lot of independent exploration as well um, with that old yellow dog-eared copy of Our Bodies Ourselves that I still on my shelf, that I was really able to grow in my comfort and familiarity discussing sex at a very early age. So I became a resource to my friends who had really different childhood experiences so that I was like, I was the sex friend. I was really able to <laughs> to be candid about a lot of this stuff, and I hope I was giving decent information. But that role as somebody that people could come to to have these kinds of taboo topics about sex and bodies, that's been with me for a very long time. Yeah, everybody needs a good sex friend, right? <laughs> <laughs> so by the, I'm assuming by the time you got to high school and you actually had a sex ed course, you already knew all of that to begin with, you know? Because school-based sex ed is just... It is and always has been so abysmal in this country. Yes. And like, God bless my PE teacher and my guidance counselor. You know, they did their best, but it was kind of wretched. And it was also too late. Like they were talking about menstruation and I was, you know, three years deep as a professional menstruator. So I was like, <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, all set. Thank you so much. So it didn't, it didn't feel like developmentally appropriate what we were getting at the time. Yeah, definitely was not developmentally appropriate in my schools either. We did get, you know, sex ed in the fifth grade, which was not very helpful. <laughs> and I don't remember a single thing from it. And then we got it again in high school from our gym coach. And uh, he really was very uncomfortable talking about sex. So I didn't get a whole lot out of that either. So, you know, it's just kind of something I had to learn about all on my own. And it wasn't until I was actually in graduate school and was assigned to be a teaching assistant for a human sexuality course that I finally like learned all the things that I needed to know about sex that would have benefited me a lot longer ago. And, you know, you were kind of fortunate to have an experience where when you took a job in a sex shop, they gave you very extensive sex education. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Like in your early 20s, working in a sex shop, what did they teach you about sex that they thought you needed to know as an employee of that store? The onboarding experience at the sex tour blew my mind. And we started off before we learned any sort of product specifications or anything like that. We had a day where we talked about very specifically about genital anatomy and development, um, which also was not gender specific and incorporated the existence of intersex genitals. We also talked about the differences between gender, sex, and sexuality and sort of teasing that out. We were encouraged to talk about our own identities and words that work best for us. Uh, we learned a lot about boundaries, which weirdly didn't come up at all during sex ed. Oops. <laughs> and we talked about how those boundaries are applicable to sexual situations and also how they're applicable to customer service situations. So it, it didn't presume that consent was something that was only ever needed for sex and that you don't need it in the day-to-day. -day. And we got to talk about queerness in a way that I thought was really liberatory and meaningful. And then we just really dove into different kinds of sexual expression, different ways that people use sex toys, 
how to be non-assumptive in our language when we were talking about things that are very personal with people. And it was just this this wonderful groundwork, not just for selling sex toys, but also for being a more responsible sexual person in the world, which like for my early 20s was really overdue right on time, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) Very useful. Yeah, it sounds like it would be a very useful course for anybody, really. And it's amazing when you think about how little sex ed so many professionals get, especially the people that we entrust to take care of our sexual health. So for example, the stats I've seen on sex education in medical school suggest that, you know, across four hours of med school, doctors are getting about 10 hours in total of training across those four years. And so what you got in the sex toy shop as part of your onboarding was much more extensive than what physicians and healthcare providers are getting, which is just crazy to me that, you know, Why do we have so little sex ed in this world, especially amongst people who are trained to or supposedly trained to be taking care of our sexual health? It's just baffling to me. Yeah, I think it's really harmful. I think it sets everybody up to fail because if part of what doctors are supposed to do is also have authority, be authoritative, like they need to have the comprehensive information that's available to them to make these assessments. But when you're writing curricula from a sex negative lens or from a puritanical lens, then you'll be like, well, only urologists and gynecologists ever have to deal with sexuality. And the rest of the body doesn't have anything to do with sex. (laughs) It also really flipped the script for me once I learned that about med schools, about the meaning of professionalism, because I was inhabiting this sort of knowledge role. I was the keeper of so much important information, but I was making 12 bucks an hour. And it was hard to imagine that like doctors would be coming to me as a resource. And then my labor was was valued at what it was valued for. So... (laughs) Really quite a mindfuck. Yeah. And you know, what you were saying about the training that you got in terms of how to not make assumptions about people, how to communicate about sex, like those are really important foundational skills for sexual health care providers. And so we all would benefit from more of this. Now, one of my favorite assignments I used to give in my college human sexuality course, it prompted students to immerse themselves in a sexually diverse environment. And I left this open to their interpretation and to their comfort level. You know, I didn't tell them they had to go have a particular type of experience. They could choose what fit with what they wanted to do or were comfortable with. And a lot of people chose to visit a sex shop. You know, I think that was actually the single most common thing people chose to do. And I loved reading those papers because students talked about how they had this idea of a sex shop as being this, you know, like really seedy environment and they thought they'd feel really uncomfortable in it. But the reality of actually visiting one was very different. And students in particular talked about how wonderful the employees were because they really put them at ease and they were so friendly and helpful. So tell us a little bit about sort of the customer service training you got in a sex shop. How were you advised to approach a customer and help somebody who might have an awkward relationship with their own sexuality to feel at ease in that sexualized environment? Absolutely. Well, first a caveat. I think CD sex shops are great and should exist. <laughs> I, mean, I, I want people to have like the jerk off booth experience that they so desire and they can't have that at like the, you know, feminist sex toy store in most places. So we need you know. the full range of sex shops. That's how I feel. But in terms of setting people at ease, it was a lot of just adapting customer service customs to what might be specific about our environment. So everyone was greeted. And that was really important that we weren't, we weren't going to just 
pretend that we weren't people to one another. We would give people space, like we would greet them when they came in and then give them a couple minutes to browse. We wanted to communicate that we didn't have a specific agenda, that we weren't like breathing over their shoulder, trying to, you know, monitor what they were looking at. And some people would solicit us specifically um, because they had questions or needed help. And then we would be all too happy to help them. And in other situations, we would we would approach and, and say, you know, hey, do you know what you're looking for today? Is there anything I can help you with? And people could choose to accept that or to continue browsing solo. Everything was out. Like the, the sex toys were not shrink-wrapped or something like that. There were displays. So people could pick everything up and, and see how it worked. We had lighting in the store that was very friendly. Like people thought we sold sunglasses or, you know, fancy skincare products or something like that because <laughs> we wanted to really cultivate that vibe. But then I also think, if, if I can be a little critical here, that there is there's a certain way that we veered into, into the cleanliness of it all, like into a sexlessness that our desire to be friendly had maybe erased some, some of the more visceral aspects of sex that it's like, yeah, if we're... T- talking to somebody about about a butt plug and we want to just assure them that it's not going to be like a, a poop explosion when they remove <laughs> the butt plug, for example, something that I did quite often in my work, we would like go out of the way to say like, oh, no, don't worry. Like as long as you're, you know, getting fiber in your diet and you have a finger in the shower and stuff like that, there won't be any poop. There won't be like, don't worry. It's okay. And then I was like, well, sometimes there's a little poop, you know, what I mean? like in my head, <laughs> which wasn't something that I shared. So I, so I think there was a lot of like, a lot of reassuring, a lot of trying to communicate things that other people didn't have the language for. Like we wouldn't, we don't expect our customers to have more or better language or a better framework for sexuality than we did as the sex educators. So if they weren't able to tell us exactly what they wanted or needed, we could do that kind of like optometry, like is it better A or better B? And then Mm -hmm. sort of guide things from there. Dildo A or Dildo B? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So in your book, you talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of working in a sex shop. But let's start with the good. So can you give us some examples of things that you particularly liked about that job? Or what was the most rewarding thing about, you know, working in a sex store? I loved so many things about my job. Teaching was really so enlivening and seeing people relax around concepts that had felt so difficult or that they had had so much pain around, like seeing people find a way through into something that that might be workable for them was extremely cathartic and really helped me also do a lot of my own self-examination and deal with my own shit. So it was like a sort of parallel process that would happen. And that was really beautiful. I loved getting to figure out what somebody wanted when they couldn't quite tell me, seeing their face light up when I had like gotten it right or when I had suggested a different way of using something. Having that click moment really felt great. And then shit comes up when you're talking about sex. So people would be seeking a toy, but what would actually come out was additional information about their lives or about like what their self-image is or like what they desire for themselves, what they want their relationships to be. And it's not a mistake that I I moved into the mental health field after that job because I could see, I mean, this was like one of the good and one of the bad things about it is that I wanted to do more and couldn't offer them more than what was appropriate within my role, but that I, I got the sense of the enormity of what people bring into the store with them how deeply personal the work is and how I never wanted to lose sight of of my responsibility helping them through a deeply personal experience. And then my last thing was that my coworkers are 
bomb. They're awesome. I'm still friends with a lot of them. And that it really, it connected me to a queer community, to a sex positive community, to an expressive creative community at a time when that was what I wanted more than anything. And so those relationships continue. Yeah. I love that story so much. And I, I can very much relate to, you know, when you're somebody who seems like a safe person to talk about sex with a topic that you're don't feel like you can talk to with anybody else, you know, that can really open the door for some vulnerability that you're probably not going to find anywhere else. A vulnerability that people often don't even have with their own romantic partners. And so people will really open up. You can have these very meaningful conversations and you can really help somebody with an issue that maybe they've been struggling with for a really long time. And that's what I found to be one of the most rewarding parts of the work that I do uh, as a sex educator as well. But you had great experiences with the employees. You had positive experiences with many of the customers. But, you know, on the flip side, you talk about how not all customer interactions were pleasant or appropriate. Some people crossed boundaries, were disrespectful, they engaged in harassment. So can you give us an example or two of cases where customers were just like totally out of line in a sex shop? Uh, I have so many. Um, yeah. I was amazed at how racist people were, which, you know, maybe that shouldn't surprise me because people are racist everywhere. Like, I'm sure people are racist at Sephora or Chipotle. But the specific way that dildos that came in different flesh tones were were talked about differently and sexualized differently was disgusting and was really hard to navigate around because there was a judgment call about when to continue providing education and customer service and when to sort of shut down the interaction. We would get a ton of terrible prank calls and had a lot of people masturbating on the other end of the line, wanting to cross boundaries um, or not being aware that we had boundaries at all. That was also really awful. And there were times where management would make calls that protected profit margins and not necessarily employee safety. So that became a huge issue, which was actually part of why I and a a number of my colleagues moved to unionize the shop that we just needed additional safety protections. I don't know. We had people, it was the Lower East Side. We had people throw bottles into the store. I like was locking up and I had set the sort of timed alarm, like the security system and then turned around and somebody drunk had like stumbled underneath our gate. And I had to like physically remove somebody from the store in the last 10 seconds. We had like a very like mission impossible tuck and roll kind of thing. And I was like, this is just fucking above my pay grade. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So all of that was, it was really challenging. And working on the weekends when people were drunk was additionally difficult because then we had to be bouncers, not just sex educators. Yeah, I think everybody who works in the sexuality space in some way deals with some kind of harassing behavior. I've experienced it online, in person. There's some amount of harassment and other things that happen. But I can't imagine, you know, for somebody who's working in a setting like a sex shop that's very much out in the open and where people might go in drunk and so forth. Like that's next level bullshit that you have to deal with. So it's a hazard of working anywhere in the sexual industry, but some some individuals are more likely to experience than others, especially those who are kind of like on the front lines of all of this. Now, something you mentioned in the book is that with regard to bad behavior among customers, you don't see that as an individual problem, but rather as a structural problem that stems from so many people leading a life where they received poor, inadequate, or no sex education. So tell us a little bit about that. How do you see this overall lack of sex ed is contributing to the kind of symptoms you observed in the sex shop? 
I don't want to let anybody off the hook for being an asshole because some people really were just assholes and that's their own individual assholery. But <laughs> when I think about taking in the totality of of the kinds of challenges that we had with customers who are being disrespectful, I'm thinking of of something that my, my boyfriend says, which is that uh, nature abhors a vacuum. And so if we've created this this void in our lives where we don't talk about all of this stuff, where we don't have the language for it, where we just, it's just empty. It can't stay empty for long. So it gets stuffed with our fears and our projections. Then fear also becomes eroticized and also becomes sort of tangled up in how we experience our own different levers of power in the world. And so all of that just gets really tangled and and nasty and comes out as harassment oftentimes. And I have compassion for the overarching, the reason why it's there, but it is really up to each individual to do their own work around undoing that. Yeah. So much work to be undone when it comes to all the wrong, terrible, inaccurate things that we learned about sex growing up. Now, as part of your work with this shop, you also sold sex toys at private events, parties, and conferences where your experiences were just as varied. And I'm not surprised to learn that bachelorette parties were the worst. (laughs) Um, uh, You know, I've seen enough bachelorette parties like in person to know and can only imagine like what they might be like in private if a whole bunch of sex toys came out. But, you know, one of the positive ones you mentioned was when you went to a conference for female cancer survivors where you became affectionately known as the dildo lady. And I just love that story. So tell us a little bit about kind of the ups and downs of selling sex toys at private events. It was hard to conceive of my role when I was selling sex toys at private events, private parties, because I was this esteemed guest, but also the one who didn't know anybody, but also the one who had an official role or a job to do. But also I had to be deferential to the host and the the special guest. I don't know, whatever. It just, it was really unclear where power was situated in the room. And so I would just try to like white knuckle it and do my best and there were upsides. I mean, I would make money, <laughs> which was <laughs> which was always an upside. And then also there were these moments of of connection and vulnerability and people were in their own space. So they were able to be candid in ways that they couldn't be if they had come into the store. So all of that was really great. I would just always like overheat and have anxiety and take a very nauseous cab ride home after those <laughs> bachelorette parties in particular. But then when I was specifically called on to teach about sexuality after cancer at the conference, I felt this enormous sense of honor and responsibility that it really did feel like I had a role to play that nobody else in the room was going to be able to do. And I took that super seriously, especially from the position of being somebody who hasn't, thank goodness, had to deal with with a cancer diagnosis. So I was speaking outside of my experience while also speaking very deeply and specifically about the thing that is my expertise. And having being received with openness and connection and curiosity and gratitude was life-changing and was a really humbling experience. And it felt really important to me in that moment to meet them where they were at with their fears, with their needs, with the way that they had been underserved by the medical infrastructures that had been also saving their lives and treating them. It just felt like this is what I meant to do. Yeah. You've had all the experiences, all of the ups, all the downs through, uh, you know, this experience of working in a sex shop and then selling sex toys at private parties. One other question about working in a sex shop, you alluded to this in our previous episode where you talked about how when the Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon happened, that 
maybe had a little impact on the sex toy industry. So what happened when Fifty Shades of Grey came out? How did that change working in a sex shop? Uh, Did you use the word impact deliberately here? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So it did some really amazing things for the sex toy industry. After Fifty Shades of Grey came out, it opened a lot of people's hearts and minds and curiosities to the idea of kink and BDSM to impact play, to role play, all of these topics that people had assumed were not going to be for them until it landed in their Kindles or or whatever. So there was a really awesome opportunity. It feels, this is so fundamentally dehumanizing, but you know when like salmon is spawning and like there are so many people coming in that you can just, or so many fish like coming upstream, you can just like hold out a pan and catch them. It felt like that for the sex industry that we were like, hello, welcome. Okay, great. Here's what we got. And so there was this big movement toward shifting programming to be about kink, about impact, about bondage. And that was so cool because it was really hard to sell that kind of stuff. It was seen as like, yeah, niche, taboo, weird or whatever. And here it was now in the mainstream. So that translation process was really exciting and was also very profitable and was also very arduous because the book, as became sort of my shorthand at the time, I was like, well, in the book, our main character, Anastasia, makes it to college without an email address. So I want you to to take that as like an indication of like what the level of fantasy is here. You know what I mean? That it's like, we are not operating from a place of reality. You cannot, in most cases, simply put Kegel balls inside of somebody's vagina and spank them and then have them have an orgasm. Like you will set yourself up for disappointment if this is the sort of standard that you're setting for yourself. So I felt like a lot of my job was just disappointing people, (laughs) 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 Um, uh, trying to be a little sobering about the experience and also to try to help people tease out what was curiosity and fantasy about BDSM and what was curiosity and fantasy about marrying somebody very wealthy, (laughs) having a helicopter (laughs) or something. Uh, Because it felt like the two got conflated. And I was like, you can buy a flogger, but you're going to be putting it in your Ikea nightstand. You know what I mean? (laughs) So let's, you know, let's make sure that the thing, that you're getting the part that's hot for you. Definitely want to get the part that's hot for you. Now, we're running short on time, but I have one last question for you. So you mentioned in the book how a huge number of people that you know, including yourself, who worked in sex shops, went on to graduate school in social work, counseling, or therapy. And when you work in retail, which is an underappreciated and hard fucking job in and of itself, and you couple that with sex toys, you end up becoming like a marriage counselor, sex therapist, or educator of sorts because you're building all the skills that you would need to have to work in the mental health profession. So tell us a little bit about how working in a sex shop is kind of like doubling as a sex and relationship therapist and makes it easier for you to kind of make that leap into the mental health profession. Ah, yes. I was a soldier in the emotional labor trenches that it felt like I was being called upon to not just sell the merchandise that we had, but also to help people navigate difficult areas of communication in their relationships or to have somatic strategies to feel safer around trauma or assault histories or to deal with internalized cultural shame. And these are all topics that like are excellent for a therapist or for a, you know, self-guided healing journey and are less effective when you're talking to somebody in a in a retail role. But there are also horrible barriers to accessing mental health care in this country. So 
it was sort of like we were the front lines. We were the, the best that people could do in certain situations. And being able to offer what we could within our roles and then being disappointed by what we couldn't offer outside of it was sort of the crux of, I think, why a lot of us ended up moving into a mental health space, that we'd been doing that work for many years, but without the kind of training that we would have needed or without the kind of environment where we can assure more safety for ourselves and for our clients. So it was like, all right, just give me the fucking certificate already. Like I've been, I've been doing this. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine. It sounds like amazing preparation and skill building, and you're going to be set up for success when you make that transition. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Fancy. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and buy a copy of your new book? Oh, absolutely. So thank you so much for having me. This has been a treat. My name is Fancy Feast, just like the cat food, um, but not quite. Don't sue me. Fancy Feast Burlesque on Instagram is the best way to keep in touch with me and my upcoming performances. That's also where you can see a link to order my book. That said, my, my book Naked on sex, work, and other burlesques is going to be available from for booksellers all over the place. So bookshop.org is going to have that. You can go to the Hachette website, Amazon, if you're feeling nasty, um, you can get it. <laughs> <laughs> anywhere books are sold. <laughs> <laughs> if you're feeling nasty. Well, thank you so much for your time, Fancy. I really appreciate having you here. And thank you to my listeners to keep up with new episodes of this podcast. Visit my website, sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller if that's what we're still calling it, Twitter, X, whatever, Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, and Fancy's new book, Naked, on sex, work, and other burlesques. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>